our desires, our appetites, even while good in and of themselves, can kill us. Our appetites, our desires, even while good in and of themselves, can kill us. Paul Harvey, the late radio host, told the story years ago of how an Eskimo hunts for a wolf. Here's how it's done. The Eskimo will take a, a large knife and coat it with animal blood and then let that blood freeze. And then he will take some more blood and some more blood and let it freeze and do that again and again and again until that blade of that knife is completely enclosed in just this, this nasty frozen blood. And then the Eskimo will go out far, far out into the wilderness and take that knife and drive it into the ground, blade up, and walk away. And that wolf eventually will catch the scent of that blood and follow it to finds the knife. And of course, its appetite, being what it is, will begin to lick that blood. And it will lick, and it will lick, and it will go further and harder and faster until the blood that was on the knife, the frozen blood, is gone. But the wolf continues to lick. Why? Because now it doesn't realize that the, the sharp edge of that blade is cutting into his own tongue. And the blood that it is tasting is his own. But his, his, his lust, his appetite, his hunger is overtaking him, and so he keeps licking. Until the next morning, when a dead wolf is found on the ground, when dawn comes up. Our appetites, our desires, even when good in and of themselves, can kill us. And oh my goodness, does that not apply to sex? Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are still moving here in the course of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at just a very short passage this morning, verses 27 through 30. Uh, if you're trying to find that, this is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 5. This is the first of the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. That is our text this morning. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Hear now the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, I think we need to pray. Lord, these are striking words that you are speaking here. And we ask that you would help us hear. Um, we ask that you would help us to drop our defenses and to let go of our presuppositions and the false assumptions that we are bringing here to this discussion. 
to hear, to really hear, and to take heed where encouragement is needed. Bring that where admonition and warning is needed. We pray that you would bring that. Whatever is needed, wherever we are, we ask that you would meet us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to give you your Thanksgiving holiday public service announcement. Make the main thing the main thing. Make the main thing the main thing. Now by that, I'm not speaking of focus more on the preparations of the turkey than the stuffing. Wise as that might be. That's not actually what I mean. I'm, I'm actually speaking of this. Focus more on the people than the preparations. Let the main thing be the main thing. Remember why you're there. Remember what the purpose is. Don't. Oh my goodness, please don't do this. Don't force the afternoon or evening along because you've got an agenda, because you've got a, sh a schedule to keep and push the next course and the next course and the next course and be you know, taking up plates while people are still eating because you want to clear things off and move on to the next thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Make the main thing the main thing. Not the preparations, not your schedule, not your agenda, but, but the people. Make the main thing the main thing. Why am I bringing this up? Because Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is the main thing of all of history. All the, of all of the present and all of the future and all of the past. And he speaks that. We, we looked at this text, uh, this one verse earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at this last week. I want to do this again this week because it's so pertinent to what we're seeing here in, in, in our text. Verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Oh my goodness, what a bold statement to make. What a striking thing for him to say. When you understand the freight of that statement of that declaration he is saying that all the, the centuries right the centuries of the ceremonies and the sacrifices and all of the history and all of the events and all the key people and the the the, the, the um even the places was all about him all of it all of the the prophecies all of the, 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 the poetic literature you find in the Old Testament, all the wisdom literature that you find in the Old Testament, all was pointing to preparing the way for His coming. Do you hear what He's saying? He is fulfilling all of that. It's all about Him. And with that, by the way, included in that, and this is where it comes into play in our text this morning, included in that are the moral commands, the moral law. That was all to be fulfilled in Him, was pointing to, was driving, was anticipating His coming. He's saying, while all those commands and all those laws and all those statutes and all those rules were true and right in and of themselves, they but anticipated my teaching now that I am giving that's going to show you what its true intent and meaning was, what it was ultimately to be all about. What it, that was meant to prepare you for what I'm about to tell you. Whoa. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And then after that, we talked about this last week, then comes these six examples. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, these six examples of what it means for him to be, have, be the fulfillment of the law and how that plays itself out. And one of those examples, we looked at this last week, had to do with the command regarding murder. It also includes this command we're about to look at here this morning, the, the commandment regarding adultery. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We need to hear and heed what he has to say on every one of these points, even on adultery. As we did last week, I'm going to break it down in, the, in almost the same outline, obviously different, fleshing it out differently, but as far as the outline is itself is concerned, we're going to look at these and in, in, in break this down in three ways. First, the command. What is the command? What was it? What was it about? The second thing being the correction that Jesus has to give regarding how people understood the command. And then finally, some cautions that he gives in response to what the command's all about and the corrections in that he gives to that. So let's look at this one at a, at a time, these in, in turn, these three things. So first, the command, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is, of course, if you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, this is, he's quoting from the Seventh Commandment. He's quoting exactly from that command. And what was that commandment about? You shall not commit Adultery. What he's saying is that all sexual relations between a married man or woman and a third party are ruled out. They are absolutely, positively prohibited. And the grounds for that prohibition was the, the purpose of, of marriage, the purpose of sex, and how those two things go together. Uh, the, the sexual union from the beginning, God's intent, was intended to, to take place only in the context of a covenantal union between a man and a wife. It was to be understood that marital relations, that covenantal bond, was understood from the beginning to be a total, exclusive, and permanent bond between that man and woman. Adultery, then is a violation of that covenantal bond. It is a betrayal at the deepest level of that covenantal trust. By the way, and that bond, that trust, was meant to be a, a living picture and image for the whole world to see of God's covenantal bond and union with his people. So that's what marriage is. And that was what the, the place is. Intentions for the sexual union. Okay, so... That's what was said. That's the seventh command. How is it read? How is it understood by the time you get to Jesus' day? By the time you get to Jesus' day, the way the rabbis were teaching it, and therein the way most people un understood it was, it had a limited application. That really, it was all about the physical act. You know, somewhere there's a line. Okay, There's this line, and when you cross that line, <clears throat> you have now committed adultery. Without any regard, by the way, for the Tenth Commandment, when you go back and read that, which clearly speaks to even this issue, the command regarding covetousness and discontentment and all of that. Now, the grounds for this legalese, the grounds for this casuistry, the same as we talked about last week, the grounds is this, or are this. It's easier. It's easier to just have a line. It's easier to just focus in on the externals and to think nothing of the heart. It's, it's easier, you see. 
Therein you don't have to worry about any repenting because you've got your line. And there's no, really no need, very little in most cases, to have to worry about depending and humility upon God's grace to preserve you and keep you from going across that line because it's easier, right? It's, it's so stark, it's so plain. I just want to say from the outset here in point number one that we need to recognize humbly that every one of us in this room may very well be guilty of this casuistry and this legal foolishness regarding what the command is and isn't about. Because, my friends, there is a Pharisee within every one of us that wants to qualify, quantify, and condition the very life and heart out of God's commands and their intents for our lives. We need to be aware of that. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, and we need to hear and heed what he has to say on this on all those points, but I'm talking about particularly this one here on adultery. All right, well, that's the command. It takes us then to the correction that Jesus gives to the regarding this command, verses 27 and now 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, before we get into the corrections that Jesus is giving, let me give some clarifications that I hope will maybe, um, I don't know, help us understand some of what's going on here. First of all, this is not, Jesus is not critiquing the law itself. Hardly. The law is eternal. The law is true. The law is good. He is not critiquing the law in and of itself. What he is critiquing are the traditions the man-made rules that had grown up all around the law, in particular this command. All right, that's the first thing. He's not critiquing the law. The second thing is he is not forbidding what can't be helped. And by that I mean simply this. He is not forbidding our appreciation of beauty. He's not forbidding that. In fact, it were, I think you could make a case, honestly, that, that, would be, that that's foolishness. I mean, where does the beauty come from? Who is the giver of the gift and all of that? Okay. He's not forbidding what can't be helped. He's not forbidding our appreciation of aesthetics and beauty, whether it's you know physical form or whatever the case may be. Nor is he forbidding being tempted. Jesus was tempted. Being tempted is not the issue. It's it's you know what you, where you go with that. As Martin Luther so wisely, so sagely said, while on the one hand you cannot help. Uh, the birds from flying around your head. You can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Those are wise words. And it applies to this, this context in terms of, you know, it's not the issue of whether or not you're tempted. It's where you go and what you do with, with that. Okay, so he's not critiquing the law. He's not forbidding what can't be helped. Nor is he promoting a prudish view of sex. That's not it either. Uh, Jesus has a high view of sex. He knows very well its purpose. He knows very well its power. By the way, I'll just say it this way. There's no such thing as casual sex. That is the stupidest, most ridiculous oxymoron we have ever come up with. Because there's so much power in it, you can't say there's anything casual about it. So he's not critiquing the law. He's not forbidding what can't be helped, nor is he uh, promoting a prudish view of sex. Okay, those are your clarifications. Now let's get to the intensifications. That's what he's not saying. What is he saying? What is he saying is this. He's extending the nature of the command. Just as we saw last week, just as he says that anger leads to as an, and is equated to murder, 
He says here in this context that lust leads to and is equated with adultery. So he extends the nature of the command, and then he also expands on the nature of the penalty. You'll notice here that uh, in verses 29 and 30, twice he mentions hell. Uh, the very word that he mentions back in the text we looked at last week, the Gehenna, the Gehenna of, of fire. Now, and by the way, in, in saying that, he is not saying, I need to understand this, he's not saying that every person that commits sexual sin is going to hell. That's not what he's saying. Friends, if you're a Christian, he's taken all your guilt and all your shame of all your sin upon himself, and it's done. It's done. But what he is saying is this. If you are loving and cherishing sin, instead of resisting it, instead of fighting it, at the very least you're doing damage, you're creating distance in your relationship with God, at the very least. And you may also well be cutting out the legs from underneath your claim to being his disciple. It's worth thinking of, about, worth taking heed, these strong, strong words that he gives here. We need to hear these clarifications that he gives, lest we be confused about the issues. And we also need to take heed to these intensifications that he gives, both regarding the nature of the command and the nature of the penalty. He says unequivocally, he equates hate with murder and lust with adultery. Now, we need to stop what we tend to do at this point. We need to stop saying to ourselves, that can't be what he means. When it is so clear and obvious, it is. It is what he means. It's what he's saying. It's what he, what he means. And rather, we need to bow before the king. And let the king declare. Let the king decide. Let the king determine. Let the king define what it means to be citizens in his kingdom. And stop playing fast and loose with his words. Jesus came to fulfill the law. You hear and heed what he has to say on this point of adultery. Okay, well then with the commands and with the correction and given the fact that obviously what he's saying here is of such great import, then comes some, some cautions for us that we need to, to hear and, and wrestle with as well. Verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is speaking here He's exaggerating. He's using what we could call in any, you know, if you remember your literature classes, your English classes, the, the, the term is hyperbole. And please, don't come up to me later. Don't send me an email on this. Don't send me a text on this. And don't try and convince me that, you know, oh, now you're playing fast and loose with the text. If you take a person on their own terms, you're taking the text seriously. We speak in hyperbole and exaggeration all the time. Why? To get people's attention. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Take him on his terms. Listen to, I mean, honestly, really, what he is saying. And wrestle with it. 
What are the images? We need to understand these images. The eye. Why does he mention the eye? The right eye. The right hand, by the way, being the, the stronger, the more powerful, the more influential in the ancient world. That's how that was understood. The, the eye. Why the eye, though? That's the medium through which the temptation to lust comes and enters our heart. The hand. Why the hand? Because that's the means by which we act on the lust that has come into our heart. So that's why he says the eye. That's why he says the hand. Let's, okay, that's understanding the images. Then let's work through these ideas. What is he saying? What is he imploring? What is he saying here? What is he warning us to, to do? He's saying go to the root. Go to the root. Whatever is causing this, whatever is ensnaring your soul, whatever is troubling you, and literally though the word is actually causing you to stumble, deal with it. Don't deal with it here at the surface. Go down to the root. Go down to the cause. And deal with it ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. Now, of course, he's not speaking here of physical, uh, excuse me, physical mutilation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what the Puritans used to speak of, and the old word is mortification. Not mutilation, but mortification. Putting our sin to death. He's not speaking here of self-maiming, but self-denial. We need to hear this. We need to heed this. This is not a game. This is war. This is war. There's a lot I could talk about at this point. But I want to be very specific and very explicit on one point of application. Pornography is a scourge on our land. It is a plague. And it is evil at so many different levels. It degrades women. And I'm just speaking of men who struggle with it. I also recognize there's a growing trend of women who struggle with it too. But men are mostly speaking to us. It degrades women and tricks them into degrading themselves. It inflames lust. And it puts spouses, oh, it is so unfair. So unfair to present spouses and future ones too if you're single. Because it puts that poor individual in a position where they cannot hope to compete with an airbrushed, tucked and tweaked, narcissistic exhibitionist. They can't compete with that. So we have to take this. My goodness, if there was an area where we need to do some gouging of eyes and some cutting of hands, this would be one. We need to flee. Absolutely flee. Turn. Resolutely. I cannot speak strongly enough about the need for accountability. Men. Women too, if this is where you're hurting. But men. Put the software on your computer. Put the software on your mobile devices. It's out there. It's readily available. Some of it's free. There's no need for this. You are doing harm, more harm than you could ever know to yourself. And if you are so caught, and I know some of you are, 
The statistics are so plain to me. If if you are so caught and so ensnared and the jaws of this thing have you so tightly around the throat you can't get loose, then get help. Get counseling. Call me. I promise me, promise you, you will not be the first. You will not be the first. Get help. This is not a game. This is war. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, right? We need to hear and heed what he says on every one of these points, including this one, here on adultery. Now, maybe here at the end, you find yourself saying, okay, I understand what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying regarding the command and the correction and even these cautions. I got it. I agree. Why am I still failing? Let me encourage you, first off, if you're asking that question, that's a good place to be. If you're just willing to ask that question, being honest enough to ask that question, that's a good place to be. But let me tell you why, in love, why you're failing. Because you are looking for the right thing in the wrong place. You're looking for the right thing in the wrong place. The great astronomer, theologian also, Blaise Pascal, so beautifully, so wisely, spoke years ago of the God-shaped vacuum in the human heart that demands, that insists on being filled, but can only be filled by God Himself. Which means that in that moment, when you're giving in to that temptation, you're settling for a substitute. You're settling for something that cannot satisfy. It's that longing, it's that hunger, it's that deep-seated longing and hunger. Of course is there. You're made in His image, made according to His likeness, but you're looking for the right thing in the wrong place. Or if I can use another image coming at it from another way. There's a great old quote, often but erroneously attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but I'll use the quote anyway. When a young man rings the bell at a brothel, he is unconsciously looking for God. Now, the first time you hear that, maybe today is the first time, that might strike you as scandalous and maybe even blasphemous. I beg to differ. I think there's tremendous insight there. Tremendous insight there. Because again, it is speaking of that deep, deep longing to know and be known. But it cannot be met that way. It cannot be met that way. Way. What then do we do with this? What what does all this mean? It means then, my friends, that when we find ourselves tempted to give in to that lust, take that as the warning light on the dashboard of your heart. 
the warning light on the dashboard of your heart that you have lost intimacy with Christ. And that is who and what you really want and who and what you really need. So turn to Him, the One who spoke these words. Turn to Him. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, Lord, King, Savior, Friend, You came to fulfill the law in Your teaching, showing us the meaning and the intent from the start. Deepening its meaning. and Extending out even the penalty. Helping us see all of what it is about. You came to fulfill the law and you heeded and obeyed it fully yourself. Living in our place. Dying in our place. And so you're worthy. You're worthy of our trust. Worthy of our looking to and hearing and heeding. You alone are the one you the one who has come to fulfill the law. You are the only one who can fulfill our hearts. Help us to look to You in the moment of temptation. Oh, may You, our desire for You, eclipse all others. And oh God, in those times, and they will come too, when we fail, when we falter, encourage us. Bring us back. Remind us of Your grace and Your mercy. Again, again, you are the one who alone can satisfy as none other can. We pray this in your name. Amen.